Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Book Shambles and the main thing that we would like to tell you about right off the top this week is we have just announced a brand new original podcast that is joining the Cosmic Shambles Network from January 28th. It's called Brain Yapping and it is hosted by Dr Dean Burnett neuroscientist and author of The Happy Brain and The Idiot Brain and the uh, Brain Yapping blog on the Cosmic Shambles Network and journalist Rachel England. And each week they will be trying to figure out how the human brain works in the most ramshackle way possible. Each week, with no preparation at all, Dean will be trying to explain how your brain works uh, and why it does the things it does, like why you constantly forget to buy things at the store or... Why you might think Meryl Streep plays for Arsenal, which is actually a thing that they talk about in the first episode. Or it might not be Arsenal, actually. It might be Tottenham. That's actually a... uh, Given I edited the episode just a couple of days ago and I can't remember, that's actually a very good illustrative point of something, uh, a phenomenon about memory that they talk about in the first episode. So this... uh, Rambling half-explanation of what the show is about is probably the perfect ad for the podcast as a whole. So that's out on January 28th, two episodes out on the first day and then every second Monday after that. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash brain yapping to learn more about that. And it, like the Science Shambles podcast and this book Shambles podcast and the blog network and everything else is made possible by your generous support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support what we do. And without any further rambling from me onto this week's episode recorded back in the studio with Robin and Josie, where our guest was Dr. Adam Rutherford. <laughs> Welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. I am Josie Long. Oh, I want to do this in the style of the phone calls I've been getting. Hi, this is Josie. I'm just calling about that accident you had that wasn't your fault. Am I correct? (laughs) And then I go, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And then they hang up. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. I'm Josie and that's Robin. And today our guest is the biologist and author and broadcaster, Adam Rutherford. I was going to say Rutherford. (laughs) I am operating operating on two hour sleeps at at one time. Uh, But we're so thrilled to have you. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm I'm really well. Good. I want to do the introduction as in what the calls I, I got. No, 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 that was what good. But I go, um, hello, uh, my name's Robin. I wonder if you've got a few moments to listen to a podcast about books. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I will then. I'll call back. Is there a better time? There we are. That's what I get. What's it, what are yours about? Just, I don't know. I've stopped answering them now, but they've just like, I kept getting ones about kitchen fittings. 
said, wow. I am not the human being you require for this. Kitchen. We're very happy. Well, we're not very happy with our kitchen, but we're not changing it. We've got, <laughs> we've got used to its idiosyncrasies That's and its uncanny condition. sounds. We're not happy, but we're not changing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, um, Adam, you uh, will start <laughs> off, uh, because I know that Josie hasn't had a chance to read your book, whereas I have. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, I'm the worst. It's not, you're not the worst podcast. at all. It's fine. You know, well, listen, I don't blame you, but, I, but the last one, if you haven't read the last one, I do blame you for that, because I think I remember hand-delivering you. A yes, copy. and it's in my house. And I'm, <laughs> oh, that is good. It's in Joseph's house. And Let's I, have a I, round of applause from the posse. Also, it's on my favourite bookshelf, and I, I, I have not finished it. That's all I can say. And I hate myself for it. And I'm so sorry. But it does have. It has a whole chapter on the genetics of having ginger hair, which we've just, I've just discovered. It looks like may have manifested in in your daughter. Yes, it's very exciting. She has a ginger head from Cradle Cap, and it really suits her. And we can't quite tell whether the hair overlaying it is ginger, but I feel in my heart that she's going to be a ginger. Well, that means that you must be a carrier of the ginger gene, MC1R. I've always thought it. And that means that your partner, her father, also is either a carrier or carries two copies. Do we know that? Yeah. Yeah, it does look like he's he's got that that stoop that suggests carrying two copies. A strawberry look. Well, it's a strawberry nose, though, rather than the actual. <laughs> That's the hair. drink. Yeah, the. Um... Um, I I I don't want to talk more about Twitter, but at the same time, what I love is seeing you, somebody whose whole expertise is in genetics, interacting with terrible fake science on the internet, yeah. and just you occasionally just being like please stop this or like this yeah. is completely impossible how does it feel doing something that you, that you spent so much time understanding at such a deep level and then seeing people be like well actually it's genetics that makes us love chocolate it is <laughs> it is a bit frustrating and in fact i had a conversation with robin about this a couple of weeks ago because you know his advice which is really sound which is just don't just huh. don't interact with these people uh, they don't want to have their... This is the thing is you can tell very early on in the style of tweet who actually would like to be given some information which may be less wrong and who <laughs> demands to remain as wrong for their whole life because it will tremendously damage their ego Yes, um, and their survival in the tribe well, well, should it's like, it turn it's out. That great, that great phrase by you know my hero and yours, Charles Darwin, that ignorance begets confidence more than... More, more than apparently any other state of mind, but it is. I see. I think it is. I think there is a more fundamental, important point that underwrites this, which is that you know, uh, Jim Alkalili or Brian can they can do their programs about the the stars, which are so distant that they have no experiential value to us other than causing us great awe. And then there's the quantum realm, which is just basically made up, isn't it? I mean, you could say anything about it. And absolute biologist beef being it, started here. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, not, I'm, I'm happy with that. But the thing I can is I that, recommend, by the way, we did a science shambles with uh, um, Philip Ball and his new book, Beyond yeah, Weird. Yeah, it's very good in terms of basically saying a lot of the things that are said about quantum behavior are kind of story possibilities, but take away from the actuality of the mathematics and what, and what it means when the mathematician, the, the, the physicist, is, is, sure. is looking at it. But that. that's, that's also like astrophysics in many ways, that, that we talk about these concepts quite relatively casually, things like the Big Bang and cosmic inflation and, and these things which we think, me and you as, as amateurs, but, but fond of space science, we talk about them as if we have a, an understanding of them. But the truth of the matter is that most of them are, are expressions of mathematics, which sort of requires them to exist. But physicists are really good at giving things really sticky names, huh. things like the Big Bang, 
which everyone goes, oh, you know, I, know, oh, I completely understand that now, the Big Bang, because it's got a cool name. The problem with genetics, or the problem with talking about genetics in public, and this is why it comes up on Twitter and it, it comes up in you know, trying to get programmes commissioned, is that genetics is just the study of sex and families. And everyone has, has come a from stake. a family... And, and everyone thinks they, you know, everyone has, it, it is a very experiential thing, yes. our lives and our interactions with other people. And what modern genetics has shown in the last 10 or 15 years is that most of our preconceptions about how inheritance and how genetics actually works are not correct. And so we've been thinking about, I mean, well, there's lots of examples in the, in the book, in the last two books, in fact. Like, for example, you know, there's a passage in the... Um, in the Talmud, the Jewish religious text, in which it describes how a certain small proportion of boys are ex excused from being circumcised in the first week uh, because of a certain pattern of their brothers who, under circumcision and cousins, have bled to death, right? And so there's a very small proportion of Jewish boys who, who have foreskins uh, because of this pattern, because of this, this passage this tractate that's written in, you know, the 3rd century BC. And what they're describing with remarkable accuracy is what we now think is haemophilia, mm. right? So, which is, a, which is a disease that is inherited in a very particular way. So we've known about the concept of the gene and the way it's passed through families for 2,000 years. We then, uh, a century ago, identify the concept of the gene uh, and then it becomes named the gene, so the Mendel and his peas, and then the course of biology through the 20th century is all focused on this, this idea that there is a unit, which is the gene, and all this stuff is correct. It's just that as soon as we sequenced the human genome in, you know, 2001 onwards, it just turned out that everything was way, way more complicated than anyone had anticipated. We don't have enough genes to, to, to look like how we thought the model of genetics was going to be, because we're more complicated than peas. Yeah, I was amazed. I can't remember the statistic you give in the book in terms of how just how few we have compared to what appear to be some very simple organisms. Well, right, right. So the, the, there's a great story behind this, which is um, that before the count had been made for the first time, so before the human genome was sequenced, there was a meeting at Cold Spring Harbour, which is one of the sort of... Hubs also a great novel by Richard Yates. Yes, it is. See, I'm not here for nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that was going to be your mastermind subject as well, wasn't it? We it talked about be. this. Well, you've blown it now. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, there was a meeting at Cold Spring Harbour. So you've got all, you've got all of the best geneticists in the world there, and, and, and there's, a, um, there's a guy doing his PhD, a guy called Ewan Burney, this is in 2000, who he's now one of the leading geneticists in the world and runs uh, a you know, huge international genetics organisation in Cambridge. So he was uh, like a plucky upstart then. Right. It was exactly what he did. In the bar, everyone who's ever been to an academic conference knows that all the best stuff happens in the bar. And he went around with a book, with a, with a betting book, and for a dollar a bet, he went to every single geneticist and said, how many genes do you think we have? Right? And, there was, and the stake was, it was a dollar, and the prize money was the pot plus a bottle of whiskey. Now, the, the highest number that anyone bet was like, I don't know, 200,000 or something. And the lowest was like 30,000, but that was a French guy who was deliberately betting low just to undercut everyone Smart else. Smart guy. Uh -huh. and That's what you've got to do in a sweepstake. Go high, go high. Don't <laughs> yeah, go in the middle. Just go one P lower. Yeah. <laughs> I go with 29,004. <laughs> I mean, it's a pricks move, but it's a winner's <laughs> yeah. move. Well, he was the winner, but he was even out by 10,000. 
So the the number comes out at around about twenty thousand. When you know we're not quite. I'd sure. have loved it if it just been one. We've seen the <laughs> yeah. human genome. How many genes is it? It's just one. It's just, one. It's just the human yeah. genome. <laughs> Are you sure you've worked this out correctly, Craig? Of course I've. I've got a speedboat. Shut your face. I'm alpha. Well, c- can I see your research? I destroyed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got to trust me. Look, I've got it in this jar. Look, it's a great big gene like that. You can't look at it. <laughs> yes, it stops being true. It's yeah. like Mormonism. Exactly. So, so, so it, you know, it it just turned out that that you know that number is fewer than it's about the same as you know mice. Oh, not mice. But it's way fewer than bananas or what? water So mice, freeze. that's why in all your books, as you have read before, <laughs> and, uh, and experiments have shown this is how humans behave. And by humans, we mean mice. I mean, this is, in terms of the, the pragmatic side, because I, I interviewed you for my book where we were talking about nature and nurture and this whole kind of blurry, you know, the, 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 the fact that, you, you know, oh, you've got that gene, that means that'll happen. No, then this needs to happen culture maybe and you know the moment you add in human culture and these you know and and the number of separate possibilities of upbringing and society things change but the useful side so i would like for instance tay sachs Mm-hmm. When we get to that kind of thing, where, as far as I know, and you'll, you'll know better than me, but the, the, the rabbi that started the screening, for people who don't know, Tay-Sachs is uh, a, a particularly in, in, insidious disease where a child at, what, about 18 months, is it, or yeah, a little but, bit older? Just boys, um, just boys. They, uh, and it's only boys, that's yeah. it. Uh, they will, But it's a horrible thing where it basically everything is unlearned, and it's, it's the brain oh, God, turns to a kind so of fatty funny. acid, doesn't it? That's, that's, yeah, that it right? does. It's and, a gene called Hexa. This, this it, yeah. rabbi, I think it was, a, you know, who, who I think had also been in Auschwitz and he started a screening thing so for in New York uh to find you know so if the couple they both have that recessive gene it it stops and fascinating stuff about that he had all these accusations about oh what you're doing is like the holocaust and he fortunately was in a position where he could kind of go uh well it's not because I saw that as well and and, but so something like taste I presume Sickle cell, this could so be... So let, let me tell you, Tay-Sachs is a fascinating case study in itself because it, this is a great example of how culture and genetics interact in, in ways which are which reveal many of our biases. So Tay, Dr. Tay and Dr. Sachs, one in New York, one in London, identify this disease at the, approximately the same time, 1882, I think it is from memory, uh, in two different families. There's nothing to do with each other, but they're both Jewish families. And... Uh, they're, they're from communities where there is a relatively high degree of consanguinity, so, so breeding with, with people who are more closely related than outbred. Um, and you see the emergence of these types of diseases in those types of families at a higher frequency. So they identify this disease and it gets labelled as Tay-Sachs disease when they realise that it's the same thing in these two different families. But it's the first disease associated with a specific ethnicity. Now, this is the late Victorian period. There's the, we're already into the march of anti-Semitism, which is going to, um, uh, well, it's going to you know, peak at the Holocaust. And it, it's labelled, Tay-Sachs becomes known as the Jewish disease. Oh, to the extent that the same disease was identified in a non-Jewish family in London in 1886, from memory, again, maybe a couple of years out, either way. And it's exactly the same disease. It's Tay-Sachs disease, uh, but it's not called the Jewish disease, and it's given another another name because it wasn't a Jewish family. Now, what you just said is exactly right. Because there was a higher frequency of Tay-Sachs in Jewish families, and this was identified relatively early, um, uh, Jews have, have successfully 
uh, offer genetic counselling all around the world, but primarily in America. And they've effectively eradicated Tay-Sachs from their communities uh, through what, what you know, genetic counselling is, is how we describe it. So, you, you know, if, if two parents are carriers of the, of the mutation or it, or it runs in the family in a particular way, then the advice is, well, don't have babies. And... It, I, in the in the last book, I do describe that as a for it, it it is a form of eugenics. Right? I mean, there's no, it, it, just in the purity of the word, what it, what the origins of how we're doing selective how eugenics is a means of selective breeding in order to change the frequency of particular genes in in a population. The uh, it, the, the eradication of Tay Sachs from um, Jewish populations is effectively a sort of form of soft eugenics that no one would possibly think was a, was a bad thing, uh, but it's all part of this changing conversation that we're, we're having now. Uh, the re-emergence of scientific racism, which I think is a thing that is genuinely happening, I still get questions to this day about the Jewish disease. People put their hands up in sensible places. Educated people saying, well, what about things like Tay-Sachs? You know, it's a Jewish disease. And you go, well, it's not. It's not. It did exist at a higher frequency in Jewish populations, but it also existed in lots of other populations. There are no characteristics which associate purely in an essential way with any ethnic or um, uh, uh, ancestrally, geographically located population. Note how I'm avoiding using the word racial because race is not a concept that is supported by... Science and if you'd like to know more, more about that, you can listen to the Infinite Monkey Cage from how many seasons back was that? We, I think that was we did seven, one, yeah, but we did even, one quite a while ago. But even that is such a big thing that is so constantly ignored. Hmm. Like, how do you get through a day where all day you're seeing people basically saying things that are like so untrue? Well. Yes, that that is, that is true. A lot of it is to do with the language. A lot yeah. of it is to do with where we started this conversation, which is people's experience is not the same as as the actual underlying truth. So, you sure. know, evolution's great deceit is that we make a lot of uh, categorization criteria just from visual cues. So, things like skin pigment and hair texture and things like that. Um, when actually, that is not very. It's a terribly bad representation of overall genetic diversity so you know a trivial example of this is that if, if you if i say i'm thinking of a black man now in your head you're you you've got an image of what that person might be like right but the truth of the matter is that the the, the, the genetic diversity within africa within mod, recent uh, evolutionary history for people who have dark pigmentation is so varied that there is much more genetic variance within africa than there is in the rest of the world but we only are making a decision based on a tiny, tiny proportion of genes which give you dark skin. So, they, so a, a guy from Uganda or a woman from Uganda is likely to be more genetically different to a person from Ethiopia sure. than either one of those people is to uh, the three of us in this room or a Chinese guy or, or an Aboriginal Australian woman. And so uh, yet, yet... When I, when I say, well, you know, science, science doesn't support the concept of race. There isn't any such thing as race in a scientific sense. And people just go, well, well, obviously there is. Because if I say there's a black guy or, you know, the winner of the 100 metres in 1984 was a black man, they, they think they know that, that sure. you know, you've got a categorization which from experience you can latch onto. It's just that in a scientific sense, it's a sort of meaningless thing to say. You'd be much better off saying... 
if you want to categorise people, uh, here is a person who is lactose intolerant, or because there are two types of you know lactase processes, and they're either intolerant or not. You either have lactase persistence or not, and that's oh, what a better world that would have been. <laughs> Bernard Manninger. Anyway, two lactose intolerant blokes going to the pub. You know what they like. Says, you know what yeah. they like. They won't have milk. Can't drink milk. They'll no, get out. <laughs> Like it is a so much more be- like beautiful way of categorizing the world and going well. The things we can definitely say yeah. are clear cut. Are like yeah, well. Well, it turns well, out it turns out that genetics is so much more complicated than than we had thought. That silly, trivial things like ginger hair yeah. or blue eyes. You know, we teach at school in our textbooks the rules about eye colour, which is that there is a gene which codes for either brown or blue eyes, and blue is a recessive condition, which means you have to have two versions of the blue gene in order to have blue eyes, and if you have one version or two versions of the brown eye gene, you have brown eyes, yeah. right? Everyone knows that. I That's remember. GCSE. Yeah. Where did green eyes come in? Well, there's a third gene. What about grey oh. eyes? <laughs> OK, well, this is the problem, because it's not really true. Oh, God. And it's not really true because, well, a couple of things. One, one is that there is the green eye gene. Um, Jealousy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also there's a whole, at least 13 other genes seem to have a significant role in, in determining eye colour. And that means that there is a continuous spectrum from the almost colourless, you know, so so pale as to be, uh, you know, sub-blue, to almost black. So there isn't like just blue eyes and brown eyes. Also, irises are not all one colour, as you'll know if you look at anyone's actual freaking eyes. And the third thing is, it's possible for parents of any eye colour combination to have children of any other eye combination. And it, And you can predict with probability what it's more likely to be but I, I, as a geneticist, would not make bets on those things. Right, well, none of this is in your new book. <laughs> so uh, we better get on to that. As a, um, tired, as a tired woman with a baby, could you please um, give me some insight into the subject of the book and how you found writing it? And... Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the basic background to the book is uh, it's about human exceptionalism. The, many of the ideas which are, but unlike all other animals, humans do this. And uh, what uh, he reveals through uh, a mixture of uh, tool-using chimpanzees and necrophiliac uh, whole-fucking otters uh, are the fact that it turns out there's a lot of stuff those animals are getting up to. Pandas which is wearing glasses in secret. as human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pandas and crosswords, of course. As you know, um, the uh, and and you, I mean, well, let's start off because you do something exciting. Sorry, that's been exciting when you find out a fact like the necrophiliac otters, and oh, you're like, This you, is going in just, the bloody book. You asked me what writing the book was like as a process. Well, the the about a quarter of it is about sexual behavior for reasons which we should explain, but maybe in a bit. But there were definitely moments where I'd spent a day reading papers on the types of behaviours that you do not see in David Attenborough documentaries. <laughs> and some of them sort of make you chuckle, and some of them make you go, really? And then there were definitely moments where I sort of closed my laptop at the end of the day and had to sit there just... I just need to think about some things for a while. Because, oh, that, because animals are... Fucking bastards. <laughs> well, that's... I mean, the, we, you, you start off with... I would have thought one of the most commonly held views of what, what marks out human beings over all other animals is uh, man is a tool user. Mm. And 
so that's I mean that's an interesting and then can you can you give us a little bit in terms of at what point because it, it seems to me um, I mean this might not be the case this time but you know when someone like Jane Goodall went out and monitored uh, Chimbrelli this this was in in the 1960s this was a time of revelation in terms of presumptions that had previously been made um, about the other apes. That's exactly right. And, and you know, the, the basic answer to this is that, well, we just hadn't looked properly. And, and science became a formal thing really in the late 19th, 20th century. And, and, you know, most animals spend their lives not being observed by humans. And so for all the, you know, amazing programs by David Attenborough and, all, and all, all the papers that come out of, of studies by ethologists and people out in the field... We basically don't know what most animals spend most of their time doing, especially sea creatures, because they're in the sea. And so and Jane Goodall, mysterious. And, and they are deeply mysterious <laughs> things as well. Jane Goodall was was is really significant in the history of this because she really is the first person to identify a whole suite of social and and um, uh, artifactual, so, so tool use behaviours in chimpanzees for starters. Darwin suggests that humans are exclusively the tool users of of, of the animal world. Um, he, he talks about how gelada baboons roll stones down hills to attack other other baboon tribes. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is we've now identified... Well, I should give you some background on human tool use because, well, you know, because we know that... Um, you know, stone tools, so the in the 60s, the Leakey family identified the the species which we now call um, Homo habilis, and alongside Homo habilis, they found a load of um, uh, chipped chipped tools. So the first stone tools, which are known as the Oldwin chopper, or the old Oldwin <laughs> tool set, and they found in Oldvai Gorge, and and that's like two million years ago, um, and that was the 1960s. So we have been obligate tool users, is the phrase. We've been using tools for as long as humans have existed. And then in the 1990s, Kenyanthropus is found also in the same area, and that's a million years older, but the Oldwin chopper set is found there too. So we now know that hominins have been obligate tool users for a million years before the genus Homo exists. Right? So tool use is just part of us for millions of years. So then you say, well, is that it? Is, it is, is that what's special about us? But as we've looked, we now know that about 1% of animals use tools, uh, which is, it doesn't sound like a large number, but, but actually that, that's, that's a huge number of animals. Mm-hmm. But the more important thing is that it ranges across at least nine different classes of animals as well. So there's, you know, amongst the mammals, there's, there's us and other great apes, but also things like otters and um, and then there's the corvids, so crows. There's a couple of good examples. Again, a paper published this year uh, of some wooden tools found that were more than 100,000 years old in Tuscany, made from boxwood, and just because of where they were made and where they fell in the ground, they have been preserved. And they're particularly interesting because they are wooden tools that are 100,000 years old, which makes them very rare. But also there's quite clear evidence that they have been burnt on the outside to... To, to take the small twigs away so that whoever made them were, were, were crafting wooden tools and also using fire in order to shape them. And we also know that the only people in uh, Europe at that time were not Homo sapiens, they were Homo neanderthalensis. So it was the Neanderthals who were doing that. This is what I was going to ask, but I felt like was probably the most dumb basic question in the world, but there are Neanderthals 
told Jean's still around. Yeah, and you probably. In, 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 in Adam, expect very much. Yeah. So. in you definitely. I mean, unequivocally. <laughs> oh, hang <laughs> on, Adam, please. That is not <laughs> I'm fair. I'm an intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> I but, don't use no, wooden it's, tools. It's a. It's about. Um, I, I would make a comfortable bet that about one to one point five percent of your genome is made up of Neanderthal. Wow. So it's still. Yeah. The. Uh, <laughs> so when you're writing a book like this. In terms of your thought of it becoming out of date, because that's one of the problems, isn't it, where you... Uh, I mean, now I very rarely buy, in, unless I, they're for historical interest like Darwin or Huxley or, you know, where I know that I'm not reading it for the science, I'm partly reading it for the poetry and for the interest in how this bit of... But, you know, if I go back to books that I bought that were old books from the 60s or 70s or, or old Pelicans and I suddenly think, I don't really need these because this mm. is probably going to be so out of date. And so when you're writing a book, how much do you, then, do you sometimes find yourself going, do you know what, I'm not going to put this in because I really feel that by the time, in, in, in the six months, yep. in between, there's a possibility it becomes dated and it will have to change for the... So there's two, it's a, good, it's a really important and good question for people who write about science. Um, and and, and I, I think I have a model for dealing with it. And the first is that you have to express judgment about work that you think is of significant grandeur or significant import that it is going to last longer than than another paper which is much more subject to temporal change so that's just a sort of judgment call but the second thing and i think this is much more important is that in all of my work and 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 yours as well to a certain extent we try to express what science actually is rather than what people think science is or the way we teach science which is that it is this bank of facts and actually that science is a, is a, a process of knowing um it, it is a set of tools it's a, a methodology for trying to aim towards the truth rather than discovering what the truth actually is and, and we don't we don't really teach that in schools and the the, the other Flips the other side to that, which is which is very much specific to evolutionary biology and genetics. For me personally, is that um, I, the, the simple narratives, the stories that that are in the press or often in books, where they tell you this is the linear story, the narrative that starts here and ends, and this is the explanation for why people are the way they are, why behaviour is the way it is, or that is just not reality. That is not evolutionary reality. It's not sort of chronological reality. It's not how humans actually are. And in all of my work, I want to try and encourage people to think about, to embrace the complexity and say, you know what, the, the beauty is in the complexity. If someone tells you that they know why a particular characteristic is the, the way it is, particularly when it comes to behavioural traits, the chances are it's just bollocks. We've nearly run out of time, so we should ask you on some other books as well. That you wrote. I'm trying to think, uh, your, your book is in, I think, the top five or top ten science books of the Daily Telegraph of the year. Uh, what are the books that, I mean, your, your, your cohort, uh, Hannah Fry, mm. uh, who we had on a, 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 a while ago when we were at the Albert Hall, when the part of you was played by Sarah Kendall. That's true. Uh, you know, her, her book <laughs> no, was. just given birth. The, um, that was, uh, yeah, because the Albert Hall gigs were literally around the. Uh, well, I was uh, thinking... my water maybe breaking during the second record <laughs> so I'd rather not yeah and then she came early so couldn't do any of it I was like or first baby, maybe you should have turned late. off because the baby was out then and it plus to go back she was very busy at the time mm. do you know what as well I, I, I think when you're talking about um, the pace at which things are 
uh, changed and the pace at which like science progresses and everything is the same as writing poetry or coming up with ideas for cultural things that are just entertainment or whatever you are you're in like a conga line and it's moving and you must give your contribution as you can in the time that you're giving it so that the next people can improve on it mm. and so you just have to put it out there and say yeah. of course this is going to change and of course this, in five ten years you might regard this differently but if i don't do this now the guy behind me can't sure and also to, to say about science that that is its virtue mm. that is its strength that we say you know i want these books to be out of date not immediately. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you want them to have some longevity. I think that, that I think a brief history, the, the last book, not the Book of Humans. I think that is a book which is it, it has prompted enough sort of public interest that I think in five years' time, and in fact, like, this is what we're sort of planning to do. We're going to do a second edition. Mm. Now, I, weirdly, it was changing very rapidly up to publication point there would you know i was having an absolute nightmare with my editors because week after week i was going i'm sorry i'm gonna to have to change this bit because a new paper's come in and if i don't include this it's just gonna be wrong yeah and and then it actually weirdly slowed down i think i got lucky there and there aren't massive changes that i would make to that book yet but i am expecting within the next five years to want to do a second edition and you know to massively update it um uh, you know, books are a weird medium in, in in a sense because you need them to be well science books popular science books because you need them to be you know enough that you can plant them in the sand and say you know here's here's a landmark mm. um but at the same time it needs to reflect that it it, it it is by default it will have to be out of date or else you haven't you probably haven't done a good science, good enough science book. But that's great, though. That means you only have to come up as you have now. You've written three books. You don't have to come up with any more ideas. <laughs> Just every couple of years, you rewrite that book yeah. and make it less wrong. Yeah. Also, well. there must be some people who luck out. There must be some people who, in 1855, go, and that is why I think that eels are like this. Oh. And then, for whatever reason, no one finds out any new facts about eels. Oh, eel debates are actually years. one of the hottest debates. Yeah, you don't aren't want they? to get eel involved with eel biology. Oh, I shouldn't have put eels out of the ground. Yeah. But there yeah. must be a few people, for whatever reason, they just hasn't been the thing hasn't moved on. Well, there is and they just in biology. In biology, years. it's called Charles Darwin. Huh. Right? And, and the, you know, He's the, laughing at everyone. The origin of species is fundamentally correct. Now, the, the, this is why it is such an important book, I think, the most important book ever written. Um, but on the grounds... There's tons of stuff in it which is wrong. Yeah. But the, the overall idea was both novel and we have spent 160 years trying to prove it wrong... Wow. And have failed at pretty much every juncture for the main idea, and and every so often someone comes along and says, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, or and I'm I'm talking about scientists rather than creationists, you know, creationists or people who d- deny evolution by natural selection in any form because that's 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 not there's no point in having that conversation, and the robustness of an idea is is you know how it stands up to scrutiny. We have literally spent millions and billions of pounds and dollars and billions of, of person hours trying to prove Darwin wrong. That's just Robin. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lot of time on his hands. So who are your, uh, um, this year, let's just, just before we end, uh, what other books, obviously you have to, to read a lot of books for the, uh, well, b- both the shows that you do on Radio 4. Yeah. Uh, who else have you particularly enjoyed? Who's well, Hannah's, obviously, um, which I do think is, 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 apart from being, you know, my, my uh, professional partner, 
I think I think Hello World is an absolutely terrific book in a weirdly crowded marketplace, but I think it is the book for now in order to try and understand artificial intelligence and its its existing role in society, not yeah. not its future or the fact that it is already profound. Yeah, some very good stories attached to it's exactly. Um, I'm on volume four of Squirrel Girl at the moment. I know you're a fan. I think the Squirrel Girl is just the just the best creation in comics for absolutely years. The, the, do you know one of the books I enjoyed the most this year? which I haven't actually finished, but I think when I say what it is, you'll understand that that's a reasonable thing to say, is the new translation, the Emily Wilson translation of of The Odyssey. Well, no, it's not The Odyssey. It's the fucking Iliad, isn't it? You haven't read very much of it, have you? You've got, you've got as far it's as old. The. They're doing that's stuff. rubbish. It's oh, the new translation God. of The. I haven't got any further yet. I, I, I don't want to come No one's spoiling. The. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Iliad. It's the Iliad. No, it's not. It's the, oh, God, which one is oh, it? Oh, can you just cut all that? That was rubbish. No, that's definitely staying in front. You don't lose, lose everything else around that and just have that on a loop. Um, I've actually forgotten whether it's well, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey is, is because that, that's the interesting thing. That That's where the uh, the, the debate over um, the Julian Jane's uh, origin of consciousness, the bicameral mind, um, uh, when we had Alan Moore on, on Monkey Cage, that whole thing about uh, wow. the idea that in the Iliad, uh, all of the characters are merely uh, have no sense of will or self-possession. And in the Odyssey, there is a sense of human drive. And that's where that kind of theory that we didn't have the, the same level of self-consciousness or interior understanding of our interior thoughts. Does Alan suggest that? Well, well, it's in Julian James's bicameral mind book, but there's a. Crikey. It's generally most people in that area kind of scoff, but happily because they also think Julian James was kind of a lot of fun. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and it's, it's interesting, interesting. It's an interesting way it, to but, think about it. But that whole idea about the, the inner voice and when you know it's yours, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. So anyway, you're reading one of the books. Oh God, that's embarrassing, yeah. wasn't it? It's definitely the, it's one of the, it's the Odyssey. Or the Odyssey. Yeah. No, there's me going. Oh, can we wow, look it up? Front read. Um, so you just go around to Adam's house and see what books <laughs> on his. Uh... Um, let's um, find out. Would you, Emily Wilson's latest translation. You said yes. That's yeah, right. Well, and um, so my next book, which I've almost finished, is about is about genetics and race. And so I've been reading a lot about the history of race, uh, which is a much darker history than we tend to think of, particularly in this country... So Rennie Edo Lodge's book is very interesting on this yeah. because it, it does something very clear. We know much more about Brits in general, know much more about race relations and the civil rights movement in America than we do our own history. Yeah. And that's a weird thing to have it pointed out, that we have a dark history of, of colonialism and racism, but we tend to know more about America than we do ourselves. Uh, I remember George Monbiot wrote years ago about the... Um, I'm trying to remember which book it was. It's, it's I think Apocalypse is in the title. Um, and one of the essays in that was about the fact that uh, in, in, in the UK... We, we are very good at airbrushing. I mm. mean, whether, whether it's better or not. It was the Odyssey. I was correct. Good. There we are. Um, so uh, Adam Rutherford particularly enjoyed reading the Odyssey. He didn't know that, but we've, just, we've done an internet search and it turned out he did. So well done, Adam. Oh, dear. Um, it must be really dark to have to go back through... Uh, the work of scientists who perhaps other parts of their work you might be like oh sure. that's been very useful and interesting and then finding that and being like oh wow I have to deal with the fact that this part of your science is absolutely and, and and that's part of my own intellectual legacy not in a particularly special way but I was at UCL doing genetics and I'm I'm three generations from Francis Galton I was in the Galton lab and Galton is Darwin's cousin and Galton is responsible for 
so much of the science that we have today invented absolutely shitloads of statistics which are he invented them and we still use them to this day and the hat with the fan that kept his brain he cool. didn't have that I, I never understood why he just didn't take his hat off and with Simpson he wrote all those sitcoms yeah yep and but he was also he, his intellectual legacy is he invented the weather map wow as well so for the 1st of April 1874, the first weather map in the Times. It was actually the I, day I before. I can't remember. what the, There is a, a, a very entertaining biography about him, and I can't remember who wrote it now, but it's uh, he also did a, 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 an ugliness map yes. of uh, Britain oh. to uh, where the ugliest women were and where the prettiest women were. Oh, Aberdeen. That was right. But there's, even, I mean, there's a funny story behind that, which is that he started doing it in Vichy in France, but, but just out in public, would just go up to women, check them out, and mark them on a five-point three-point scale. And it turned out that that was n- not the most successful way of doing this, this possibly ill-conceived idea. Oh, my God. But, but wait, so he modified it, and he invented... A, he had a system. He had a piece of paper in his pocket with three... He had a three-tier system... And he kept his in in his pocket, and he had these modified gloves, which had three needles on the end of his fingers, so he could mark them in his. And you know what he called it? He was called his pricker. So he'd stand in parks all around the country, oh, no. checking out women. Uh, was fondling inside his pocket with his prickers oh. and came up with a beauty map of, of Great Britain. Anyway, that, and yet that's now all... it turns out some of his science... It wasn't yeah. quite good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was a... Ma- the point, in response yeah. to your question, he, yeah. he, Galton was a profound racist. A, and not just... You know, it's important to contextualise the thought of the time when he was having... When, when he was around. He was a racist for Victorian times. Oof, that's... That's hard <laughs> yeah. going. That's so he hard was, to... you know, and Darwin at the same time, his cousin was was an abolitionist and and had uh, he he was profoundly influenced by John Edmonston, who was his taxidermy tutor when he was at uh, Edinburgh. Edinburgh, Edinburgh, yeah, who was a freed slave, and a lot of Darwin's writings include sections which are, uh, you know, unpalatable to our modern ears. But I, I think it's not unreasonable to say that Darwin was not a racist and was fairly liberal for Victorian times. Mm. Uh, and Galton was not. He, I, I think he was, he was a racist for, for even for Victorian times. So, what, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that? I, I, the Galton chair exists, the Galton professor exists, Galton lecture theatre is where I had 90% of my lectures. Um... And, and I think he's a really good example of one old white dude that we need to keep talking about because his ideas are now back about eugenics. He invented oh. eugenics as a concept. And How has that happened? Is it literally just people being badly informed online? Well, I think, I think, it's, I think it is say? a classic example of that old maxim, which is that if you just don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Sure. And that's why I think Galton should be a very present... Um, part of the of the discourse of the intellectual discourse now uh as well as the history of eugenics people just do not know the history of eugenics which was which was which was profoundly interesting because they it was not considered a toxic idea until after the holocaust and it's on the right and the left william beveridge was an out and outspoken eugenicist who suggested that we remove the franchise and remove um, and possibly sterilise men who are uh, alcoholic or, or feeble-minded. That's Beveridge, 
who sets us up with the welfare state. Yeah. My favourite one, I know we're running out of time, but my, and, and, you know, we know about people on the right doing this, like Churchill, or suggesting these ideas, like Churchill and America had a very aggressive eugenics policy for almost all of the 20th century. 31 states, probably 70,000 people involuntarily sterilised. Um, we never had it in this country, but um, <laughs> you, I know you do, Josie. Uh, most people outside of the UK, in my experience, aren't aware of Mary Stopes clinics, right? Mary Stopes being one of the centres all around the world of providing women with reproductive rights. Yeah. Yeah. So a profoundly, in the modern era, something which is part of the emancipation of women, part of um, empowering women to have control over their own bodies, mm -hmm. right? Mary Stopes was interested in abortion because she wanted to exterminate the Irish from London. I knew that this was going to have a horrible <laughs> twist. Just at the start of it, I was like, oh, oh Here we go. Well, let's just... Oh, she, wrote, she wrote love poetry and sent them to the German Chancellor Adolf Hitler oh right God. up to the beginning of the war. So in 1938, she was profoundly anti-Semitic. There's a, there's a poem that I've got in one of my slides where she talks about yeah. someone being, the Prussians are a curse, but the Jews, they are much worse. There's or something a, like that. There's a Ooh. quote from a book called Story of a Secret State, which I've talked about before here. Um, hang on, but I've written it. Um, it it's Story of a Secret State is about the Polish resistance in the Second World War, and it's by Jan Karski, and it's really interesting. And at the beginning of it, when um, uh, Poland gets betrayed by the Russians on one side and betrayed by the Germans on the other side. A young soldier kills himself and he says, I don't care anymore, he answered. Life is too complicated and the world too sordid. And I always think about that quote all the time when I hear yeah. that, like, yeah, it's too complicated and too sordid. Yeah. You know, when you think something is reliable or you think somebody's, yeah. somebody's well, a you goodie. can have that quote tattooed over the Mary Stokes face that you just <laughs> have on your shoulder blade. We've run out of time. Okay. Uh, thank you very I much, Josie. I don't want that to be, be the end, that the world is too complicated no, 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 and too sordid. It's, it's, it's not the end because there will be a sequel to this. Well, so, I say uh, this to I say this to all of my friends who have babies, and I've said it for for years. And I say this to you now, Josie. Now that you have reproduced, I have successfully. The world is a beautiful place and worth fighting for. Oh, but then he goes, "Well, I know about the first. I don't know about the first, but I think that the second is definitely true." Yeah, and he's asking you out for a fight. <laughs> so, uh, thanks very much, Adam Rutherford. Uh, and uh, obviously, you can hear all of Adam's shows as well, which are, are frequently on uh, Radio Four. And I have read the book, and it's we didn't we didn't end up talking the, the the sex chapters, which we talked a little bit at the beginning, uh, are very entertaining and uh, at times toe curling and lurid. And <laughs> will if you go and see the sea otters at Philadelphia. Zoo. You keep watching for a while and you may well be in for oh, a dark and disturbing treat. Uh, Josie's movie is going to be going around the place. Uh, yeah, if this um, is released soon, it's really, really soon the tour, but we should be putting some more. And uh, I'm joking, so are you. My book from uh, Atlantic is out at the moment as well. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast via uh, Patreon. Go to CosmicShambles.com where you'll find loads of science, blog posts, uh, films and other bits and pieces. Yeah. Yep. Oh, sorry. Yep. I'm, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I remember that as a yawn at the end of that. Which, 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 which hotel you go to? For you. Um, it's this podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. <laughs>